Hello and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? You know, I can't complain at all. This is one of those cases that we're going to be discussing today that it's too much to believe sometimes. Like, I'm not going to say too good to be true, but the amount of coincidence and twistiness is, yeah, it's just hard to believe sometimes. Like, if you watch this movie, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, it's a little crazy. I would almost accuse a Hollywood director of sloppy writing if if he had put this <laughs> for me without prior knowledge. Yeah. So who do we have to thank for this most excellent case this week? So this week we're giving a shout out to Emerald, also known as G, also known as Auntie M. All of those things apply. We really appreciate the tip for this case. Now, where does this case take us? It takes us to Harrington, Delaware in 1991. Harrington was a small town full of mostly friendly people. So Harrington, Delaware is a city in Kent County, Delaware in the U.S. It was founded back in 1780 by Benjamin Clark, and at that time it was known as Clark's Corner. Now, you and I come from a place where we had our own Clark's Corner going out towards Alcova, but this is a little bit different. Now, in 1862, the name Harrington was adopted by the town, and it's part of the Dover Metropolitan Statistical Area, Dover being the capital of Delaware. Now, Harrington is known really for one thing and one thing only, and it's that it hosts the annual Delaware State Fair each year. This state fair brings in some pretty big acts. Reba McIntyre has performed there, Brad Paisley, Little Big Town, a lot of the bigger country and western names. The population was only 3,774 in 2020, and it was actually named for the Honorable Samuel Maxwell Harrington. He was a former chancellor of the state, and the town itself actually developed as a railroad junction along the Delaware Railroad, and it served as a rural trading hub for many, many years. However, I don't believe that's why you've brought me to Harrington today. It is not. So why did you bring me here? So today we're going to look at the case of Dorothy Mae Donovan. She was born in Burrsville, Maryland on May 18, 1921. She was the second daughter of John and Ethel Bonney. Dorothy married Wallace Holden, who passed away in 1968. He then married Ralph Donovan, who passed away in 1987. Dorothy had three children named Charles Holden, Brenda Alexander, and Diana Reinhardt. She had a great love for her family and loved being a mother and grandmother of seven. She was an energetic woman who loved gardening and caring for animals. At the time, she lived on a farmhouse on a 163-acre farm near Harrington, Delaware. Holden lived on an adjacent trailer on the farm and worked at the DuPont Company factory. On June 23, 1991, Holden ended his shift at the factory and stopped by a Hardee's in Harrington, ordering a hamburger and coffee inside, and walked back out to his truck. As he began to back out, he noticed a man standing at his driver's side window. The man asked Holden for a ride, but he hesitated since it was so late. The man told him a story about his sister having just had a baby in, at Milford Memorial Hospital and that he needed a ride and he was, quote, in a big time bind. He told him he couldn't take him far because he lived close by. Then he agreed to take him part of the way. Three miles down the road, Holden pulled off at the intersection with Killen Pond Road, where he normally turned to go home. He told the man that it was as far as he could take him, then pointed to a phone booth nearby and told him he could call for a ride. 
The man became angry and said he wouldn't get out of the truck because he needed to get down the road. Holden tried to explain that he had previously said he could only take him a few miles. Even angrier, the man said, listen, I got a problem and I ain't getting out of this truck. Apologizing, Holden told him that he couldn't help him and that he had to get out. Suddenly, the man punched Holden in the face, picking up a screwdriver from the truck's floor and demanded both money and the truck. Holden grabbed his keys and jumped out. The man tried to drive off but realized that he'd taken the keys, then got out and ran after him. Running to a nearby business named Blake's Garage, he banged on the windows, but there was no one there. The man steel-wielded the screwdriver and said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you right here. He demanded that Holden give him the truck. Holden said to calm down, and then he said he would take him wherever he wanted to go. As they headed back to the truck, Holden got in quickly and drove off before the man could get inside. Speeding away in the opposite direction of his trailer, he drove for several minutes before turning around. He didn't see the man anywhere, so he decided to head back home. However, once he arrived, he saw the man standing in his yard, looking through the windows of his trailer. Somehow, the man had found his trailer, which, as we said earlier, was beside a small farmhouse where Dorothy Donovan lived. Holden rushed to a payphone outside of the Hardee's and called the police at 1.19 a.m. While he waited, he tried to call Donovan several times, but she didn't answer, despite the fact that she usually stayed up until he got home. The police categorized the call as low priority. At 3 a.m., Corporal Myrna Williams Kinney of the Delaware State Police arrived at the payphone to meet with Holden. He explained how he had seen a man around his and Donovan's home and wanted someone to go there with him. They arrived at his trailer first and found nothing amiss. Holden asked Corporal Kinney to look at Donovan's house, which was about 60 feet away. They walked across the yard to the back door, which they discovered had the window broken out. In an upstairs room, they found Donovan deceased. She had been stabbed more than two dozen times in the face, arms, and chest. The medical examiner stated that the stab wounds were from a cutting instrument and could have been consistent with a screwdriver or a knife. They believed that she had been murdered around 1 a.m. Holden reportedly stated, I can't believe he killed her. So the fact that he stabbed her with a screwdriver. Looking into this, it's not as uncommon as I had originally assumed. Now, (laughs) in the U.S., stabbings are the third most common way to kill someone in a murder scenario in the U.S. However, in the United Kingdom, it is the most common way that people are murdered. So scientists in the UK were actually looking into like what type of force is actually necessary to use different types of weapons and whatnot for stabbing. And what they found was that the weapon geometry was characterized and related to the peak force that's required for actual penetration. So the results show that there is a direct correlation between the cross-sectional area of the screwdriver head and the amount of force required for penetration. For example, like screwdrivers with a larger cross-sectional area, like a large Phillips head screwdriver, would actually require significantly greater force to penetrate. They found that it was between like 100 and 120 newtons, but sharper slotted screwdrivers like a flathead penetrated at a much lower force, which was around 30 newtons. So the forces required for penetrating with screwdrivers were definitely higher than sharp knives, but a Phillips head they actually found was very similar to if you were trying to stab someone with a blunt knife. Now, they they did test other weapons like chisels and stuff like that, and they found that, again, the force required for penetration was much higher than an actual knife. So 
for this guy to to do this to to Dorothy, he he had to put a lot of force and anger or definitely a lot of strength and force behind what he was doing. This isn't uh, an oops type right. type moment. So, I mean, it's yeah, it, it's it's a pretty brutal thing that happened to this poor old woman. Yes. So was this maybe like a robbery gone wrong or, or something along those lines? So her purse was untouched and nothing appeared to be missing or out of place in the house. So the police ruled out both robbery and sexual assault as motives and Donovan had no known enemies. Initially investigators suspected Holden and thought he concocted an elaborate alibi and detective Gregory Nolt of the Delaware state police stated that the mere coincidences in his story made it difficult to believe. It was difficult to believe that Holden had picked up the man, taken him a couple of miles, dropped him off, and then he somehow managed to show up to Donovan's house and kill her, despite not knowing either of them. One of the detectives said, only an idiot would believe that story, not me, an experienced policeman. During questioning, detectives told Holden that they didn't believe his story, especially that the man could have walked half a mile down the road and managed to happen upon his trailer. After doing some digging, they discovered that he was having some financial problems and that Donovan had recently taken out a life insurance policy and had listed Holden as the beneficiary. He also refused to take a polygraph test. The police even considered that Holden may have hired a hitman, but eventually ruled that out. So the polygraph test angle, you kind of hear that a lot in a lot of different cases. And some people might argue that, you know, if you have nothing to hide, why wouldn't you just take the polygraph test? Well, uh, there, there, there are so many reasons, and, and I'm going to get into some of those. So a lie detector test, also known as the polygraph test, what it is is it's a machine that measures a person's blood pressure, perspiration, heart rate, and other physical reactions while he is being asked questions to supposedly determine whether he or she is guilty. Especially if you know you're innocent, you might be tempted to agree to take one if the police ask you to. However... It's truly rarely a good idea to just agree to this. And really, you should never, ever make a decision without first consulting with an experienced criminal defense attorney. I cannot state I I, I cannot overstate how important it is to have an attorney present with you anytime you're interacting with the police. Now, it is important to understand why the police are asking you to take this test. First and foremost, it is not to get to the truth. That is not the purpose of a lie detector test. The purpose is to gather evidence against you. So here are some reasons not to agree, even if you think you can pass the test. Reason number one, it is not required. The police cannot force you to take a lie detector test, whether you are a suspect or have been arrested. Second reason is unreliable results. So the results of a lie detector test are unreliable, and many innocent people have failed them. And even if you pass the test, it does not mean that you will not be charged with committing a crime. When I was living in Denver, we were watching a true crimes documentary. And crazily enough, it took place, the murder took place across the street from the apartments we were living in. And the craziest part about it was the people that that killed the woman, they were her caregivers. And they passed their lie detector test. They had smoked a lot of marijuana. They were very calm and relaxed and went through and they and they passed their lie detector tests. So innocent people fail them. Guilty people pass them. The results are not reliable. It's also another reason is it's not admissible because they're so inaccurate. 
lie detector test results are not admissible in court. And this is true whether you pass or fail. So if you pass it, they're not going to say, well, he passed his lie detector test. Like, this is not, they are not there to help you. And perhaps the biggest reason is because of incriminating statements before and after the test. So while the results of the test cannot be admitted in court, any statements that you make before or after the polygraph are admissible in court. And the officers who administer these tests are well trained in how to give them and to ask questions before and afterwards in an effort to get you to make statements, sometimes unintentionally, that could incriminate you or statements that you make during the exam, which could lead police to other evidence that they can use to convict you. It's really important to remember that when they read you your Miranda rights, they tell you anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Nowhere does it say can or will be used to exonerate you. So even though he refuses his lie detector test, you know, a lot of people initially would say, well, he's hiding something or he doesn't think he can pass. Like he very well may believe that he can't pass because he's under so much stress and duress because his mother was just murdered and he just drove the man closer to his mother. So just a a bit of thought to it when you are being questioned no matter how much good cop they're playing he's not your friend (laughs) like his job is to wrap this case up and if he thinks it's you like these detectives here have stated openly that they don't believe him and they think it's him and that's how they're pursuing it he did the right thing by not agreeing to a polygraph test yeah so how did they figure out that it wasn't him or that it was this other guy that they didn't believe existed. So Detective Nolt said it wasn't until they went back and interviewed people at the Hardee's restaurant that they discovered that the man actually existed. Several people said he'd asked them for a ride, and some also saw him getting into Holden's truck. One witness stated that they saw the man chasing Holden at the intersection, and others stated they'd seen the man walking near the farm where they lived. One person even said the man had knocked on their door before he continued on his way. There was other evidence to corroborate Holden's story. He had injuries to his face where the man had punched him, as well as burns on his wrist from where his coffee spilled on him during the scuffle. Investigators conducted forensics testing on the house and found physical evidence at the scene. There was a bloody palm print on the banister and two sources of DNA on the banister, as well as a light switch that didn't belong to Holden. They eliminated Holden as a suspect. The man was described as a black male in his late 20s or early 30s, 5'8 or 5'9", 150 pounds. He had a slender build and pockmarked complexion. At the time, he wore brown dress pants, a brown plaid shirt, and large dark plastic framed glasses with oversized lenses. Police suspected that he may have been on drugs at the time. A composite sketch was created and distributed. Investigators believed he may have been passing through the area and then fled to another part of the country. They didn't believe the man knew Donovan and Holden were related. Holden and other witnesses picked a man named Rich Mitchell out of the photo lineup. He had had arrests for forgery and petty theft and lived in Harrington at the time. However, he had a full beard while the suspect was clean-shaven. He also not only had an alibi but was not a match for the bloody palm print and was thus cleared. Two FBI profilers who later examined the case concluded that Dorothy knew her killer. They believed that the murder was premeditated and committed by someone she didn't perceive as a threat. Donovan never got out of bed despite the window on the door being broken, and the floorboards were very creaky. They assumed that she would have gotten up if it was a stranger, but she didn't. 
The profilers believed that the killer staged the scene in order to make it look like a random crime. They pointed to Corporal Kinney's claim that the killer may not have been able to reach through the hole in the broken window to unlock the door, and that Donovan's body had been arranged to make it look like a possible sexual assault. The profilers also didn't believe a random killer could have navigated Donovan's house in the dark. There was also a pillow placed over her face after the crime, and the number of stab wounds indicated that the killer had shown a lot of anger, which would be unusual for a random crime. From there, the crime went unsolved for a number of years. Holden's siblings didn't speak to him for a number of years, thinking that he either had something to do with the murder or possibly blaming him for giving the killer a ride to what was very nearly Donovan's door. In May of 2004, the DNA from the crime scene was uploaded into the Combined DNA Index System, also known as CODIS, which is a national DNA database. In November 2005, the DNA was matched to 41-year-old Gilbert E. Cannon, who lived in Delmar, Maryland. The bloody palm print was also matched to him. So you bring up the DNA databases. What that is, a DNA database or data bank is a database of DNA profiles, which can be used in the analysis of genetic diseases, genetic fingerprinting for criminology, or genetic genealogy. So DNA databases may be public or private, and the largest ones being national DNA databases, which is what we have here. So DNA databases are often employed in forensic investigations. And when a match is made from a national DNA database to link a crime scene to a person whose DNA profile is stored in the database, that link is often referred to as a cold hit. So a cold hit is a particular value in linking specific person to a crime scene, but it is of less evidential value than a DNA match made without the use of the database. So one positive thing from this is that research has actually shown that DNA databases of criminal offenders do tend to reduce crime rates. So did they actually find this guy after they identified who it was? So Cannon was living in Delaware at the time of the murder, where he had previous convictions for robbery, theft, escape, resisting arrest, disorderly conduct, burglary, and assault. After all that, he spent seven years in a Maryland prison for drug and robbery charges, as well as a murder he committed in 1997. Prior to his release in September 2004, Cannon's DNA was collected. Photos of him from around the time of the murder also bore a strong resemblance to the composite sketch. Initially after his release and the DNA had come back as a match, the police were unable to find him. However, on January 18, 2006, he was arrested at his girlfriend's house 40 miles from the murder scene. He was charged with first-degree murder, possession of a deadly weapon during a felony, and first-degree burglary. When the police questioned him, he denied any involvement in Donovan's murder. He stated, I'm not going to sit here and say that I killed somebody or that I was even there. Well, Gilbert, one thing I can tell you is that you were there. It is impossible for you not to be there. We're just telling you on tape that is your DNA. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's no one else's. It's a perfect match. I don't know what you were doing back then. I have no idea. And we're actually hoping to try and sit down and get this resolved, said the police. A few hours after the investigators presented the evidence against him, he confessed, stating, Basically, I went out. I mean, I don't know if it was the drugs or what or whatever. I honestly, I mean, I don't have any reason to lie about it now. I didn't have to say this. He stated that on the night of the murder, he was high on cocaine and looking for more. Cannon stated that after the scuffle with Holden and being left behind, he started walking down Killen Pond Road. He said he passed a few houses, but they all had lights on. He looked for a place to sleep and stopped at the first house that looked empty, which was Donovan's. However, when Cannon broke through the back door, he woke Donovan up. 
Fearing she would identify him, he attacked her and stabbed her with the screwdriver he'd taken from Holden's truck. Kenan confirmed that it was mere coincidence that he chose Donovan's house. He said he didn't know her or Holden and was surprised to find out that he was her son. He also confirmed that he had acted alone. Originally, he faced a possible death sentence for the murder. On April 24, 2007, Kenan pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Donovan's children began to reconcile after the guilty plea, but sadly, Diana Reinhart passed away on August 2, 2020, at the age of 66. This case, as I said at the beginning, it's it's a bit of a crazy one. It's it's very twisty, very turny. And I'm going to be honest, this case is really one where you could say no good deed goes unpunished. Charles Holden gave this man a ride. He told him he couldn't take him too far, but that he would take him down. He got him to where he could get a payphone. The man attacks him, tries to steal his truck, tries to steal his money, tries to hurt him. He gets away, and the guy finds his way back to Charles's mother's house. And, and Dorothy paid the price for her son trying to be a good guy. And right. furthermore, he paid the price for years while his siblings didn't believe that he didn't participate or have some sort of role where they could lay the blame at his feet. Now, that being said, I do understand the frustration and the need to find an outlet, the need to find someone to lay blame at, but it, it's really, really unfortunate that it had to happen to this to this guy. I mean, he, he lost his entire family for, for a bit yeah. all over things that he didn't do. And the police were very, very much of the opinion that it had to be him. And it kind of makes you wonder, though, too, if the police had taken him seriously, if they could have caught this guy earlier and alleviated a lot of the the issues that Charles suffered as well. Right. Including so, them labeling it a low priority for the initial phone call that he made to them. Which is absolutely mind boggling to me, like. If someone, if I say, hey, there is someone who is dangerous at my door, please come help. Ah, we'll get to it when we get to it. That's Two just, hours later, yeah. Like, there, there were many, many, many points where this didn't have to go to where it did. And unfortunately, and I don't know how many times we're going to do this throughout this podcast, but the mismanagement by law enforcement can be seen on full display here and it cost a woman her life and it cost a man years of his. So that's unfortunate. Hopefully Charles and his other sibling are able to enjoy a bit of their life now, but and this is why we also say not to give strangers rides. This is why we say that hitchhiking, giving strangers rides. It's a bit cliche and yeah, the chances are, are low, but the chances are never zero. And is it really worth it? Especially not when we have cell phones today where you can just call somebody an Uber or, or let them make a phone call. Don't don't give random people rides. Your listener, do not do it. Well, I think, Rebel, that that's going to bring us to our missing person of the week. However, this week's a little different on that. I'm not going to say too much. I'm going to let Rebel take it away. But this week, we do have our first update. 
Yes. So Rebel, you want to take it away? Yeah. So we discussed the case of missing person D'Andrea Ford in episode eight, The Woodford Slasher. Just to recap, Ford was a witness in a capital murder case when the driver of the car, Otis Parker, was shot and she barely escaped. She went missing September 21st, 2023, outside of Diva's Bikini Sports Bar and Grill in Houston, Texas, and was last seen getting into a van with an unidentified man. Originally, we speculated that something untoward had happened to her as a result of her involvement in the case, despite the alleged perpetrators being deceased or in jail. The mother to a four-year-old son, Ford was known to be reliable and would not have been out of touch with family. Ford was working at the establishment, and around 1 a.m., she met Yolande Washington, who was a 51-year-old man from New Jersey. She was seen on surveillance footage getting into his van, where she then vanished. Her boyfriend was supposed to pick her up that evening, but she texted him at 1.34 a.m. stating that she had found a, quote, date. He texted her back, but the message went unread, so he went to the club around 2.23 a.m. to look for her. Just before her boyfriend arrived at the club, about a minute earlier, Washington can be seen pulling out of the parking lot and driving away. Investigators spoke with him several days later, and he said the reason Ford was never seen exiting his vehicle was because he dropped her off at another location. Investigators searched his vehicle and used chemicals that react with blood. It shows spots in the interior that span from the back doors to the driver's seat. They used a DNA sample from Ford's son and were able to find that it was consistent with her, along with Washington's DNA, on three blood stains on a shirt that he wore the night she went missing. Investigators said that Washington had an extensive history of violence against women and that his account was suspicious. They used video surveillance and Google location data to contradict some of his story. Washington has been charged with murder, and police did not say whether they believe Ford's death was related to her being a witness in the Otis Parker case. This is pretty much exactly what we don't want to have happen. We want to give information about missing people so that they can be found and returned to their families alive. Mm -hmm. And in this case, while we both were of the opinion that something had happened to her we were hoping that that wasn't the case and again it's just even more twisted and and shocking that it seems to be again not at all related to what we thought it was so this is a tragedy a four-year-old lost his mom and the family is mourning their daughter so Mm -hmm. unfortunately we weren't able to bring this one home but hopefully we won't have to give too many updates like this in the future. Yes. Wow. So, Rebel, I think this week was uh, another big emotional roller coaster of an episode and a, a missing persons case, truth be told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it's always heartbreaking to bring these cases that, you know, negative things have happened to them. And I'm hoping that they're able to locate her body and bring it home to the family so that they can give her proper send off and all of that. But so far they haven't located the body yet either. Which just makes, as you pointed out for the family, just it makes closure so much harder. Again, being able to bring them home to say goodbye, to pay their due respects and, and give her the proper send off. Hopefully Washington will do that. I'm not holding my breath on this, but no. There's there's no but, telling what other evidence they might find that might lead them to where they need to go. Right. Yeah. He was just arrested on January 14th. So it's still pretty early and he hasn't been to court yet and spoken with lawyers and they haven't finished collecting evidence and such. 
That's true. So there is time. And truthfully, sometimes prosecutors will use stuff like that as incentives for a plea deal. So mm-hmm. we we will see. If there is another update, dear dear listeners, we will give that to you as well. We are not going to be doing another missing persons this week as we figured this would be an appropriate part of the show for this. So Yes. So yeah, I think I think Rebel, that's about as much as I can handle for one week. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So as much as we do enjoy bringing you this content, we do appreciate every like, every subscribe that you guys give us. But even more importantly, when you share it with your friends and family and grow our murderosity family, that just helps out in ways that you can't imagine. Now, let's say they want to do that, Rebel. Where can they send their friends and family to enjoy our podcast? So we host on Podbean and we're available on most of the major platforms. So Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and so on. We always post our show notes on Murderosity.com. We accept submissions for tips and stories to Murderosity at gmail.com. And we can be found on most of the social platforms as Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast. And we're always willing to interact with people there. So if they have tips, they can also post them there for us. Yes, we've had quite a few uh, requests. We've had... You know, we've even had people that have written us to give us updates. We love interacting with you. We don't just say that. This is actually a, a passion for for us. So yeah. keep those messages and information coming. And, you know, we we'll, we will interact with every single one of you when we can. So I think that's going to do it for me this week, Rebel. I think, yeah, I think that that was a, a pretty twisty turny case and a very emotional recap for our missing persons report. Yes. Thank you, dear listeners for, for coming and visiting us. We will be here again next Friday. We look forward to seeing you then and y'all stay safe out there.